We just got done singing what song? Oh, come to the altar. Oh, come to the altar. Who's ever heard of an altar call? Mm -hmm. Do you ever wonder where that came from? An altar call? You can't actually find it in scripture. There is no such thing as an altar call in scripture. In fact, the concept of an altar call is fairly, is, is about as new as the, is probably the sinner's prayer. That only caught on maybe in the last hundred years or so, this concept of the altar call. Um, and, and became very, very popular. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, though. Uh, the concept of it, we gave it a terminology. Um, but, but we don't, we sometimes use terminology in such a way that we don't realize what it means. We say it, it's like, Christ, I call it Christianese, right? Uh, if you've been in the church for any period of time, you start to pick up another language. And I'm not talking about speaking in tongues, although that's good too. But um, the, the, we, we pick up these, these words like sanctified and, and altar call and regeneration and born again and, you know, things like that. And, and you know, it's funny because somebody can come into our, our meetings and have absolutely no idea what we're saying. And we, we, we use these terms as if everybody knows what we're talking about, right? Uh, because they've become so common to us we don't even know what they're talking about half the time. And there's something, and what I realize is that there's something about the altar. We talk about, you know, we go into a lot of church, but we don't have a church building here. We meet in living rooms, right? Uh, varieties of living rooms. Uh, so we don't have altars. But if you go to a lot of church buildings, they have an altar. Or they, at least they call it an altar, right? Um, and then they have these altar calls, which is, as we understand, is, a, is, a, is a, an invitation for people to come forward to what? To repent and get right with Jesus. Is that a bad thing? Of course not. It's a fantastic thing. I wish we had a lot more of it. I wish more churches would have. They have quote-unquote altars, but no altar calls. <laughs> right? Um, a lot of churches have altars and altar calls. Some churches don't have altars. They have a stage, but they still have altar calls. Right? So there's a lot of forms and methods that people do these things. But my concern is, is not what we call it. And it, my concern is that we don't really know what, what it means to come to the altar. Um, and so I want to I go back. And so if, you, if you'd like to turn with me, uh, I'm gonna, I want to look at the first time an altar is mentioned in Scripture. Uh, we're going to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. And as you're turning there, I'll just give a little bit of backstory. The, the, um, I, I believe very much in what's in, in, in one of the principles that I, that's called the first mention principle. It's a way of interpreting scripture. First mention principles. If you really want to understand a concept or an idea, a word or something like that, go to the first time it's ever mentioned in scripture. Mm -hmm. Okay, and it begins to it sets the framework and the foundation for for the for other instances and gives you the context for other instances that word or that idea is being talked about throughout Scripture. So there's many principles. There's the first mention principle. There's the context principle, and, and so on and so forth. All very important to interpreting Scripture rightly. So the first time the word altar is ever used, and by the way, uh, the word altar is used nearly 400 times in scripture 400 times so there's a lot of significance around the altar and i am not going to even barely scratch the surface of the significance of the altar 
Um, but I am, so I'm just going to focus on a couple scriptures. And uh, I invite you to research this on your own. But altars are really interesting. Let's, let's look at the first time it's ever mentioned. It's in Genesis, Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 and 21. It's right after the flood, the great flood is the first time it's ever mentioned. Uh, verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. Now here, here get the picture here, is earlier in Genesis, it says that God, the, the evil was so rampant on the earth that God said, I'm sorry I even made these, these people. There was wickedness happening that we have never seen on the earth since. I think it's coming again, according to Scripture. All right? As in the days of Noah, so it will be in yep. the end. Well, what in, was happening in the days of Noah? There was absolute and complete corruption, even to the point of, of the demonic was so intertwined and working among the people that the... Look it up in Scripture. Yeah. I'm not going to go deep. Um, there was the, the demonic women were ha actually having sexual relationships with, with the with, with human women with demonic beings and they were producing some these giants called the Nephilim yeah. okay and that's actually the Nephilim uh, uh, without going into it David and Goliath we know about David and Goliath Goliath a giant was a descendant of the Nephilim yeah. right it, who made it through even after this time the Nephilim line was preserved even after through uh, through the, uh, the, 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 after the flood. And so in any case, it was so wicked. He says, I'm going to wipe them all out. But there was a family he preserved who was Noah and his family, right? His sons and their wives. And he put them on, gave Noah the instructions to build this ark. I'm going to judge the entire earth because of their wickedness, but I'm going to save you and your family. And I want you to gather one, uh, two, a male and female of every kind of animal, not every animal, right? So like dogs, we know there's a lot of dogs, right? There's a lot of different types of dogs. There's a sharp peas, sorry, now I'm blank. There's German shepherds and there's, you know, Labrador retrievers and everything, but they're all a dog right and through breeding over the time they came to these different breeds right well back then there were fewer breeds they had but they were a kind and he brought a pair and then over time they, they came right so it's not like it was the same I, i'm getting into the gen you know <laughs> the you know genesis uh, creationism and stuff but in any case get all these put them onto this ark and I'm going to save you. It's going to rain for 40 days before night. So I'm going to be wiped out. So this all happens. All, all this transpires. He gets off of the ark. The ark was his Noah's deliverance. Mm -hmm. His protection from being judged on the earth like the rest. He gets off the ark and he responds by what? Building an, building an altar and sacrificing the most precious commodity at that moment were animals. 
it was i mean they hadn't reproduced yet they hadn't repopulated the earth yet but still he took some of the best and he offered that to the lord and it was a pleasing aroma to god so catch the picture here for a moment about this altar god delivers noah keeps noah and his family from being judged and noah's response is taking the best that he has and sacrifices it to the Lord. And the Lord is pleased by it on this altar. So this is an interesting circumstance. As I mentioned, the altar is referenced. So tuck that away because that's coming back, by the way. <laughs> the altar is referenced in scripture, like I said, is uh, nearly 400 times. The word sacrifice, because he said he, he, burnt, uh, he offered a burnt offering on the altar. So he sacrificed these animals on the altar. The, uh, the word sacrifice is over 300 times in Scripture. Think about that for a second. So altar and sacrifice over 700 times mentioned in Scripture. There, it seems to be a big deal. All through Scripture, there's something about this concept of, of the altar and sacrifices being done. All right, so let's talk about the altar for a minute. What was the use of the altar? So an altar, altar is typically a raised platform uh, where animals or produce were sacrificed or burnt. Okay, they were killed there and offered up their parts of them or they were burnt completely. A burnt offering is one that all of the animal is burnt. So it's all of it is offered up to the Lord. There were other offerings where only certain parts of it were offered to the Lord. They would cut out meats and stuff and that became food for the Levites because they didn't have an inheritance like the other 12 tribes of Israel. So they uh, ate from the portion of the sacrifices that came in. And that was a way that they were paid for their services. Okay, so there's different kinds of sacrifices, but an altar was this raised platform where animals or produce were, uh, were sacrificed or burnt. And they were built for different reasons. So altars, or altars were often built to, uh, to commemorate an event. So such as Noah, we, as we just read, right? They, they, they commemorated the, the, the event of God saving them from judgment and repopulating the earth. Okay, so they would also be built sometimes to prepare the people for what God was about to do. Okay, so we see this. So before the law was given, the Israelites set up altars before he, he gave the law you know, uh, to Moses. And of course, altars were used to make sacrifices for sin throughout all of the Old Testament. And I think most of us are probably uh, you know, understand that, uh, that con concept. Now, of all of the altars, there were two altars that were probably the most famous of, uh, of all, and they were in the temple. The one was the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice was out in the courtyard. The, the, the temple was built in three parts. There was the outer court where anybody could come. There was the inner court where only the priesthood, the Levites could, could serve. And then there was the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the high priest once a year alone could go in there. All right, outer court, inner court, Holy of Holies, three places. The altar of sacrifice was an outer court altar. Anybody, and everybody who committed a sin against God, who broke the law, would have to come to the outer court and offer a sacrifice for atonement for their sin. But then there's another uh, uh, altar that was in 
uh, the holy place, that was called the altar of incense. And this one was, um, and it was uh, just before the veil, and it would burn incense. They would burn incense every morning and every night on that. And the fire that they would use would come from the, the altar of sacrifice from the outer court. So they would take some of the fire and bring that to the altar of incense and they had a very, God gave them a specific formula. This is what I want you to put into this incense that you're going to burn on this altar. And it's going to be a pleasing aroma for him. Uh, this is all the things that God was doing. All of it, very symbolic. All of it, by the way, pointing to Jesus in the church. All of it. And so, and again, I'm glazing over this. This goes way deep and we're only hitting the surface on that. So just kind of travel with me on this. But they had to take the fire from the altar of sacrifice and that became the altar of incense, the fire that was used from the altar of incense. So if you know, if you know your Old Testament, there was this little thing about strange fire and lighting the altar of incense with strange fire, not from the fire from the altar of, of sacrifice. And it ended up in more than just the incense, incense more than just the uh, the uh, the incense being burnt. Let's say, okay, God judged that, and He goes, uh, uh, uh. What is this strange fire? Uh, so, in any case, those were some of the famous altars that that they were used, and they were used for all kinds of purpose. They were sometimes named. People would set God would do something or take them to a place and they would have a great victory, they would set up an altar and name the altar. So it was, they were often used as a memorial as well. So altars were huge in the Old Testament, right? Uh, and, and of course, then comes the sacrifices. The altar was used for various purposes and kinds of sacrifices, but they always represented a place of consecration. Now, that's a, that's a big religious term, right? Big religious term that we sometimes hear, consecration. The purpose of the altar was always to bring consecration. It, and basically, we could, we could say that the altar was usually, it represented a person's desire to consecrate himself fully to the Lord. Consecration is like another big word, Christian word, called sanctification. How do you like those words? All right, those are 10 penny words right there consecration and sanctification well what do they mean well consecration literally means to be dedicated devoted or sacred right sanctification means to declare something holy so we're talking about consecration and sanctification are all about declaring something to be holy and right before god so whether you're burning an, a, a sacrifice for a place or an event to remember the Lord, you're saying this event was a holy convocation to God. This was a holy thing that God has done. Or they have a new place. We're dedicating this to the Lord. Have a sacrifice that consecrated it to the Lord, sanctified it, made it holy, declares it holy on the Lord. Right? So that's what it's really about. It's to declare something as holy. So it's basically to just, it's, it's, that's the symbolism of the of the altar is that something that is not necessarily clean or wrong uh it's wrong but now we're declaring it to be right we're declaring it as something unto the lord that is holy devoted and sacred all right 
So that's generally what that means. Now, by the way, that concept is not unique to Christianity. There were many cultures that had sacrifices in the times. Of course, their purposes and reasons and all were different, but that was culturally not unusual. But the difference here is that our sacrifice or these sacrifices in the sacrificial system, sacrifice, that's easy for you to say, the sacrificial system that was set up was pointing to one great and final sacrifice that would be done. That's the difference. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the sacrifice a little bit now. We talked about the altar. Now let's talk about the sacrifice. Altars are always a place of sacrifice. So there were five main types of sacrifices in the Old Testament. There was the burnt offering that we just talked about, and that's what Noah did. A burnt offering is to consume everything, all parts of the animal. There was a grain offering. There was a sin offering. There was a trespass offering, and there were various types of peace offerings. And you got to be an expert on the, the Levitical law to understand all of the different reasons why you use a different offering for different purposes, depending on what the situation was. All right? And so it was constant. The way that they had to live their lives and all the laws and that they had to do, if they broke any of them, they had to make a sacrifice to make atonement, to be made right, to be made holy again before God. But you had to match the sacrifice with the transgression. It was a complicated system. It wasn't easy, right? But the sacrifice was was always the one what had to be brought forth. The importance of the altar is not so much the altar itself, but rather the sacrifices to the Lord that are made on the altar. So it's really about the sacrifice that we're talking about here. So let's go a little bit deeper on that. This, it's, it's the sacrifice that is the most significant. And this is the very thing that we need to clearly understand about the altar. Remember, how do we start off? Start off talking about altar calls. We're talking about coming to the altar. We sing these things, coming to the altar. What does that really mean for the Christian? What does that mean for us? Well, really, it has to do with the sacrifice. Coming to the altar is bringing a sacrifice. So let's understand the sacrifice. The sacrifice is always something of value. Always something of value that's brought to the Lord. All of the Old Testament speaks not only of sacrifices, but specifically of blood sacrifices. Like I said, there were non-blood sacrifices. There were grain offerings and peace offerings and varieties of things. But blood sacrifices um, were particularly those that pointed to Jesus. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament spoke to and revealed the great sacrifice that was yet to come. Now, at the time, nobody understood it. They understood what, understand how that all pointed to this Messiah that would have to be sacrificed. But they all pointed to it. In relation to the sacrifices made for sin, the blood sacrifice was always Necessary. Now listen to this for a second. Leviticus 17.11. Leviticus 17.11 clearly talks about the need for blood in the atonement for sin. 
It says this, Leviticus 17, 11. The entire life of a creature is in the blood. And I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives since it is from the life blood that makes atonement. And we're talking about consecration. We're talking about sanctific, being sanctified here, being declared holy. I'm going to read it again. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. That understanding was, was the very purpose of the blood sacrifice of the Old Testament, that they had to come, that there was, if you needed to make atonement for your life, you needed to get right in front of, before God, there had to be a blood sacrifice. Why? To bring you life, some, it has to come through blood. When we're in transgression, when we're sinning, there's a death that happens. We're out, we're, we're out of alignment with God. We're disconnected from God. We need to be brought into alignment with God. We need to be brought into his life. And in order to do that, there had to be a blood sacrifice. Again, who is this pointing to? Jesus. Jesus. This is all pointing to Christ. Right? So there was this very elaborate sacrificial system. Our sin always comes with a penalty. Always. A price always must be paid. Always. Our entire judicial system is based on this concept of crime and punishment. You commit the crime, there's a punishment that's assigned to it. Always. Right? And in, if justice is being served properly, the crime, the, excuse me, the punishment fits the crime. And we know that doesn't always happen because our, our judicial system is very, very flawed these days, especially these days. But when done properly, the punishment fits the crime. The whole, the whole uh, sacrificial system was based on this concept of crime and punishment. That the punishment had to always fit the crime. But as it related to sin, it always dealt with blood, the shedding of blood. Because our crimes are severe, our sin are severe. It introduces death into our lives and in order for us to be reconciled to God, there must be a death punishment. A life must be given for that. And you say, man, this is deep, this is crazy. In the, back in these days, this was not misunderstood. They would get this because it was literally in the culture. We have a hard time wrapping our heads around it these days because we are so far removed from this. That's why we've got to t stop and say, do we understand the term, th th what we're saying? We're saying, oh, come to the altar. What does that mean? It means something's got to die. Mm -hmm. And it's serious. Something's got to die in order to bring life. Our judicial system, like I said, is based on crime and punishment. So it is with God. We commit the, the crime of sin. A punishment must be paid for it. Altars were the place where these debts were settled. They were settled on this debt, on these, on these altars. When the Israelites would break God's law, they would bring the appropriate offering, like I mentioned. It could be a pigeon or a lamb, right? And it had to be a perfect lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish, right? That means you don't give, if I've got a couple lambs in my flock here, 
And they, that was very commonplace, by the way, to have your own livestock, right? I don't go, well, I was like, well, I got to go make this sacrifice because I, I, I broke God's law. So let me go and get the, the worst lamb, right? Yeah. The one's got the main leg and, you know, we don't know, you know, the one that I don't, you know, doesn't have any value. I'll give that to God. I'll give that to God. Is God going to receive that sacrifice? Absolutely not. That lamb would be inspected by the Levites. and They'd say inappropriate. It can't be right. Can't sacrifice. You give the best. You give the best. They have to be without blemish. Why? Because this is a serious penalty. And you're going to give God your best. That theme is all throughout Scripture. It's a whole concept of tithing, by the way. Giving the first 10%, the first fruits of your increase. Giving God the best. It was also the issue, if you remember in, in Genesis a little bit before uh, what we read in Noah, right, when it talked about Cain and Abel, they both brought a sacrifice to the Lord. And Cain, uh, 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 Abel's sacrifice was, was received because he brought the, the best of his flock, right? The best of his, um, he, he was a herdsman. He, was, he raised animals, right? So he was the best, of, he brought the best and God received it. Not only was it the best, but it was also a blood sacrifice. Cain brought, the Bible doesn't say he brought the best. He said he brought some. Some of his grain, because he worked the land. He brought some of his grain. Not only was it not a blood sacrifice, but it was also not the best. And he rejected that sacrifice. Rejected it. It wasn't good enough. And then we can see why he rejected that because Cain's heart was wicked. And when he got really jealous when, it, when Abel was received by God and he was rejected, he got jealous and what did he do? He killed his brother because of it. There's something about bringing God's best and making sure that what you're bringing has value and it's the appropriate response to the sin that you've committed the altar is the place where those debts are settled the lamb the pigeon the doves the whatever they would be bringing those things would receive the punishment on behalf of the person the transgressor you and I and it would settle the debt of sin, of breaking the law. But the sacrificial system, as elaborate as it was, as, uh, and as uh, righteous as it was, because God said it, he set it up and commanded them to follow, it was imperfect. It had problems. And there are two Big problems with this. And if you really want to understand this, you need to read all of the book of Hebrews. But especially chapters, uh, say, 7 through 10. If you really want to study this. But the two big problems of the sacrificial system and the law in general is that it never fully dealt with the heart of the individual. And because it never dealt with the nature and the heart of the individual, 
they had to continuously make sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again. And the sacrificial system was done through the Levites, through the priests, that they would bring their sacrifice to their offering to the, and then they, the Levites would sacrifice it. Well, here was another problem. The priests were imperfect. The priests themselves were sinners as well. So in order for them to serve in the temple, they had to actually make sacrifices for themselves first to be declared holy and sanctified, consecrated, so that they would be worthy of yes. offering the sacrifice for the people. So you had imperfect priests doing sacrifices for, for, for people that ultimately would have to continue to come back over and over and over again. Because the law only deals in the, in the, in the confines of crime and punishment. It's all it deals with, satisfying crime and punishment. What happens in most people that spend a lot of time in jail? And I know there's at least one person in the room that knows this. When they get out, what typically happens? Recidivism rate, they go back in. Why? Because the punishment doesn't change the heart of the person. It merely satisfies the debt. It doesn't change the heart. That is tre tremendously important. And that was the problem of the sacrificial system. It was incomplete. Here, Hebrews talks, I'm going to two, two portions of scripture that I'm going to bring out in Hebrews. It talks about this. Again, if you really want to read it, read chapters 7 through 10 in Hebrews, at least, but really the whole thing. Hebrews 7 verse 27 and 28 he says he jesus it's referring to jesus he he does not need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do first for their own sins and then for those of the people he did this once for all time when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son, son in capital S, the son, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. He became not only the high priest who could offer the sacrifice perfectly, he didn't he was he was without sin. Jesus is our high priest is what is what the 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 Hebrews is making the case on here. He is our high priest. He's a perfect priest. He's the one who has not sinned. He did not have to offer uh, a, a, a sacrifice for his own sins because he had none. Right. Not only was a high priest, he was a high priest forever. Right. And the Bible calls it of the order of Melchizedek, which we're not going to get into on that one. That's a whole nother sermon and teaching. Not only was he the perfect priest that could offer the sacrifice for your sins perfectly without having to cleanse himself, but then he went and offered himself the perfect lamb that never sinned, a lamb without spot or blemish, offered himself up to be sacrificed on an altar called the cross that had a name. Remember, altars had names. This one had a name too. It was called Golgotha which means the place of the skull. 
It had a name. It was just outside the city, which is also a, a famous place where the sacrifices were made were just outside of the city. Right? The scapegoat. The sacrifices outside. Without getting into all of that teaching. He was the final sacrifice made for us. It goes on in Hebrews 9, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. I'm just taking a snippet here. You got to read it all to get it all. Hebrews chapter 9, 9 uh, through 14. This is a symbol for the present time. Okay, this, he's talking about the sacrificial system here that we just talked about. This is a symbol for this, for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Right? Remember what I just said? The law can only punish and be made, you can be made right if a, if a sacrifice, if a punishment is made through the sacrifice, okay? But it doesn't deal with your conscience. It doesn't deal with who you are. You're a dirty, rotten sinner who keeps on sinning, and a sacrifice can be made over and over and over again through the old system, but it's never going to make you right. Never. It can't. It can only do crime and punishment. That's all it can do. The purpose of the law was to show us how absolute. Don't you think you would get sick? I mean, honestly, if we had to go and make a sacrifice every time we sinned, we'd be thinking about our sin an awful lot because it's really inconvenient to keep going back and find another dove and get another lamb and going to the sacrifice and going through all this thing. And expensive. Yeah. If I want to be right with God, if I care to be right with God, that's incredible. That's works. That's the works of the law. For their right to earn righteousness, but then never actually made them right. What it did is it exposed how wretched they are, how wretched we are. Right? This is what they had to keep doing this over and over and over and over again. The cycle needed to be stopped. It had to be stopped. But this final sacrifice had to deal with the conscience of man. It had to deal with how the man thought, how the man, when I say man, of course, we're talking about women and children and everything else. I get that, right? You all get that, right? It had to deal with the consciousness of, of the man, the man who, who, who had the, the thoughts and the mind of God and said, I do, I will not sin against you. I want to be transformed. I want to be regenerated. There's another religious term for you. I want to be regenerated. I want the old sinful man of death to be done away with so that I can live righteously before God. And that is what Jesus came to do, right? He, what he did is he didn't do away with the sacrificial system. He fulfilled it. What it could not accomplish, he accomplished because he was the perfect high priest offering the perfect sacrifice, which the old law couldn't do. And through him and the power of his spirit, he'll transform you. He'll take away the, the body of sin. He'll take away, not the body of sin, but the sin nature. He'll defeat that so that now we, play, we, we, we live our lives from the place of victory. We fight from the place of victory, not defeat. So let's continue on with Hebrews 9, uh, chapter 9 says, uh, now in verse 10, it didn't deal, it couldn't perfect the worshiper's conscience. 
Verse 10, they are physical reg, rev, uh, come on, Mike. They, they are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands remember where were those two important altars that was in the tabernacle in the temple right the sin offering the offering incense now he's got a different temple he um but as christ appeared the high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, of this creation, he entered the most holy place once, once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. Not by bulls and calves any longer, but by his own blood, a son, a son of God, by his own blood and the ashes of the young cow sprinkling, uh, sorry, I jumped ahead of myself, having obtained eternal redemption. I butchered that. I'm going to read again. Verse 12. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption, not temporary. The old sacrificial system was temporary only. Until you went and blew it again and you got to come back and make another sacrifice. His is eternal. Once. One time. That's all it took. Why? Because it was perfect. Unlike the old. Verse 13, I love this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, the sprinkling of those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. He deals with the conscience. He changes your nature. It's not just bringing these sacrifices like the Israelites used to do, only to go and have be just doomed to repeat them again and have to go through the same process. When we come to Jesus, his perfect sacrifice changes your nature, cleanses your conscience and says, my penalty has been paid once and for all, all time. I no longer have the guilty conscience because of the blood of Jesus, because it was done once perfectly for all time. If that is not, we don't understand the significance of that having not coming out of this type of a system. We don't understand it. We don't understand how depraved and desperate we are for the blood, the sacrificial blood of Jesus. We don't realize it. The more you realize how depraved you are, how much punishment you deserve, you'll get, once you come into that revelation, how much of God's wrath you deserve. Just like Noah, where we started, he deserved the same wrath as everyone else that lived on the earth because he was sinful and his family was sinful. Oh, he was more perfect. He was a good and a righteous man in comparison, yes, but he was ultimately fallen. 
And God spared him in his grace and his mercy. And so he offered a sacrifice of his best. As a declaration to the Lord. When God delivered him, he offered a sacrifice. And now that's where we end. Because we now don't offer sacrifices for our sin. That's been once and paid for all. But we do offer a sacrifice, but it looks very different. We offer the sacrifice of ourselves. We lay ourselves on the altar. We lay ourselves on that altar. We read about that in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. When Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, and what he's saying there is, in view of and thought of Jesus having mercy on you and offering himself up as your sacrifice for your atonement. There's another word. As for, for your sanctification to be declared holy and righteous. In light of that, remember, our forgiveness and his sacrifice demands a response. Just like it demanded a response from Noah, it demands a response from us. We too offer a sacrifice, but not with blood of animals, but by our own lives. He says this, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. This is the logical worship. This is the logical response. The Greek word that I looked up, translations are all different. This is your, um, what, what do some of them say? Your, your uh, um, reasonable, a lot of them say your, this is your reasonable act of worship or act of service. The word reason, reasonable there is actually can be translated logical. It's actually the Greek word for logic. It makes sense for you to offer yourself down. It's a logical response to his mercy is to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. That's an oxymoron. Right? Two words put together that mean the opposites, living and sacrifice. Remember, sacrifice are always dead. You kill them. And he says that we are a living sacrifice. We're alive, but we're alive in Christ. But we're dead. We're dead to ourselves. We are alive in Christ and dead to ourselves. And in fact, that's what happened on the cross. When we receive Jesus, or more accurately, he receives us, and makes us right before God the Father, reconciles us to the Father, because it's his work only, not yours. You're not good enough. I'm sorry. You can't do it on your own. Only him. He reconciles and he receives us into his kingdom through our, our repentance. 
At that moment in time, our old self is, has been crucified with Christ. Our old self, it's like a trans, it, it like goes back to almost 2,000 years and it goes on that cross. That cross had a whole lot of people on the other side of it. Jesus on the one, but on the other side of that cross, there was me and you and everybody else that came into the kingdom and their flesh was all crucified at the same time. Say, so what, what are you talking about, Michael? Well, Galatians chapter two, verse 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified, past tense. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the body, I now, I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are alive and we are dead at the same time. Hallelujah. We are alive in him, but we are dead in ourselves. In fact, this was the very thing that Jesus commanded. This is the very thing that he told us would happen. Luke chapter 9, last verse. I'm closing with this. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. He says, Then he said to them all, Jesus speaking here, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. Every day we sacrifice ourselves on the altar. You don't come to the altar and leave it. The next time we have an altar call, don't get up from the altar and think you're leaving the altar. We go to the altar and we stay there. Every day we die to ourselves. I'm tired of religious tradition and people just going through the motions when Jesus has called us to a life to, that is laid down before him because he has provided the ultimate, has paid the ultimate penalty for us to, to, to take away our guilty conscience, to wash us clean. Did you know that God the Father in your sinfulness and in your brokenness, if you're in Christ, God the Father, when he looks at you, he sees you perfect. And he sees you perfect because he looks through the blood of his son. He looks through the cross, the, cross, uh, the sacrifice and the resurrection of his son. And he sees you covered and sin free. Punishment Ooh. paid that's what he sees. That demands a response from us and says, if that is the price, if that was what Jesus has done, that my father can look at me perfect, I lay myself on the altar and I be, I'm alive, I'm, I'm walking around, I'm doing the things that God wants me to do. You can pinch me, it hurts, and I, I, I go through this life, but I am not living for myself. I am not living in my strength. I am not living in my ability. I am a dead man. But he is the one that gives me life. He is the one that gives me purpose. He is the one that gives me strength. It's my life is, is completely lived in him and for him and by him and through him. 
Christians, we have got to wake up. Your life is not your own. Your job is not your own. Your kids is not your own. Your finances is not your own. Stop living like they are. Set aside all of your ambitions and your drives and your desires for a, 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 a little pink house, a white pick and fence and 2.5 children with a bank account and all these things, and then I'll be happy. Our purpose is to lay our lives on the altar of Jesus Christ and to bring him glory and to fulfill his purposes. This has nothing to do with us. We are weak, we are shameful, we are naked, and we are blind because we're caught up doing the religious junk every week that has absolutely no power and no authority in our lives. None. We're singing the songs, then we don't even know what we're saying. We're reading the words in scripture and they're not impacting us at all. Why? Because we're full of ourselves. We're full of the way that we think. We're full of all of the experiences of our lives. And we say, oh yeah, well, I kind of like what this scripture says, but I'm going to kind of ignore this one because that just doesn't resonate with me. And I would say that's the one that you got to double down on. You got to, that's a part of your life that has to be laid on the altar and die. Yes. You have got to lay yourself down and sacrifice yourself on the altar. And it is not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. He is calling us to greater things. He is great calling us to a greater life. Earlier, Lori prayed about the fruit of the Spirit becoming abundant in our lives, where it's just overflowing, right? That was always God's purpose when he brought them out of Egypt and put them into the promised land that the spies in. They came back and they said, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is so overwhelming. It's, it's a total abundance. Milk speaking of the, of the farm life and, and the honey speaking of the plant life. Right? It was overflowing. They picked up grapes. It took two men to carry the clusters of grapes. There's an abundance in God, but it's done his way. And as long as you're doing it your way and living for yourself, it pay, you, you're going to live in spiritual poverty. In Revelation, what does he say to the church? He says, you are poor, naked, and blind. You don't even know it. You don't even know it. We don't know our depravity. We need to get a revelation of, of that sacrificial system of how horrible that really was. It was not pleasant. Could you imagine? All that death, all the time, all the blood, all the gore, horrible. That should, that should, we need to get a revelation of the blood and the whore and the, the, the uh, just, the terror of what Jesus endured on that cross of Calvary because he paid a penalty that fit the crime. That's how bad your penalty was. Yours. Mine. It wasn't that he paid such a high penalty because he was taking... It was so bad because it was the sum of all of mankind. No, it was the same penalty that was necessary if he was dying for just you. And not for millions. It was the same penalty. That's what it took. We have to have a revelation of that. 
And everything that he took is actually what you deserve. That's exactly what is, what is, is coming to those who reject Christ. The penalty of hell is real. And there will be continuous burning. And it's as bad as it seems or explained in scripture. Others have tried to, to make it look like it's a lighter thing and explain it away. And to do that, you literally have to contradict Jesus' words himself because he described it. And if you can trust that Jesus is telling the truth about his, what he has accomplished for your life, you can trust him to believe him that when he describes what hell is like, yeah. he's not lying. He's telling the truth. That is what you and I deserve. Well, no, I basically have been a good person. I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to do good to people. Why would he send a good person to hell? He didn't send anybody to hell. Ever has he sent anybody to hell. We're all going to hell. And he threw out Jesus there to stop us from getting there. Amen. He sent his son because he doesn't want us to go there. The Bible says that hell was created for Satan and all of the demons. That's how, why it was created. But all those who reject them, reject him. This beautiful sacrifice. Why in the world would we ever reject him? Why? And why would we ever live for ourselves? I would say because we haven't gotten a revelation of our depravity. We haven't gotten a revelation of what the altar is all about. Once we get that, everything will change. The fruit of the Holy Spirit will flow. Not because you're any good, but the Christ in you is good. And he brings his goodness out. And he changes your nature from the inside out. And that's beautiful. So, Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, and we pray that you would give us a revelation of Jesus, a revelation of our desperate state, and that we would respond appropriately and lay our lives down on the altar and say, Lord, I die to myself and I live for you. Yes. move desperately oh God we pray desperately move in our hearts we need you we cannot come to this revelation in ourselves it requires you God to show us so I'm praying and I'm asking that you would show us and that we would offer our lives the living sacrifice holy and acceptable to you because this is merely our reasonable service. It's our logical response to offer ourselves. We, oh God, want to be a pleasing aroma to you. And we give you glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Woo! <laughs>